0: hello and welcome to the no good poetry podcast each week we talk about the good the bad and the ugly of poetry this is episode
1: 77 with joseph marcos and joseph Bievenu. this is the good bad and the ugly isn't it some ugly shit out there kids let's make the world safer for poetry So here we are. We're back uh, at the new spot. I'm OC Haley. It's it's nice to be here. Um, and weekday,
0: weekday afternoon.
1: Weekday afternoon. It's been unseasonably hot, and it's been hot this week,
0: man. Like, it really has. I mean, this weather. is this is the first time that I'm feeling the the heat in this place a little bit. But hopefully, we'll get through this little heat wave here.
1: Yeah, I think it'll be alright.
0: <laughs> Down here
1: in Balbancha. <laughs> Um, we have a really super special guest, um, a good friend of mine. I want to say that's first because I consider Jeff a good friend. And uh, um, But we have a guest today uh, to talk about a bunch of things. Um, uh, Jeffrey Darnsberg, uh, Dr. Jeffrey Darnsberg is a tribal council person and enrolled member of the, oh God, I'm always so thankful, <laughs> is
2: that right? That's, that's pretty close, you know. What's the exact pronunciation? It's, it's a Takapa Ishak. Takapa Ishak. Ishak,
1: yeah. Uh, nation of southwest Louisiana and southwest, southeast Texas. He lives in Balbancha <laughs> and is a First Nations of Louisiana Creole ancestry with deep roots in Point Coupe, St. Charles, Orleans, and Calcasieu K- That's actually
2: a, a, the parish where Lake Charles is and that was,
1: uh,
2: that was the French mishearing a word in our language what was, what was the word? The word was kat- koshioch, which is the name of one of our chiefs screaming eagle and so they named the parish for him. But the French couldn't really say "Koshak." Shoot, I can barely say it. "Koshak" like is a little bit had to Frenchify it a little bit. Yeah. Man, I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, <laughs> since,
1: since we start on that, I mean, how, I mean, it just seems like how much of the language was just misheard and pronounced anyway. So that, much uh, right? happens a lot. Yeah. <laughs> you
2: know, and then people, words, you know, but around here we have a lot of words from native languages, especially Mobilian and Choctaw. Undibeq- devo- uh, you know, in New Orleans, there's Chapatulis, you know, and... Uh, Shupik Indians,
1: maybe, is that what that comes
2: uh, from? Yeah, that's the word uh, Shupik, and Uh of course, Mississippi is a native word in several languages, uh, and then we have Balbancha, which is the word that I guess I'm really concerned about in, in this publication.
0: Um, yeah, so we should say, <laughs> part of the impetus of getting you here today is this wonderful zine that you've come out with, Balbancha is still a place
2: that is the title yes
0: so what so what uh what inspired you to get this project together here
2: well um there's several of us here who had been talking about a native zine for a while and um then uh, daniela capistrano who owns dcap media here in new orleans media company uh, she is a Latina woman, and she, for years, has been a chairperson of POC Zine Project, People of Color Zine Project. And so she asked me if I might want to put together a native zine, and so I kind of already had a bunch of people in mind that I would put in such a zine, and so that's what happened. We kind of got it together with a sponsorship of POC Zine Project, who sponsored the uh, printing and production of the zine. Um, and it was edited uh, by myself. I edited... Uh, mostly the words, and then um, my co-editor, our arts editor, is a local artist who prefers to go by the uh, moniker Ozone Five Hundred Four, and everyone who is involved in this uh, publication pretty much, you know, has some sort of Native ancestry, um, except for maybe uh, I don't know how she identifies, but our our guest artist Pippin Frisbee Calder, who was very gracious enough to donate some of her amazing art to publication. Um, And the title comes from a lecture I gave at a conference that was sponsored by the New Orleans Center for the Gulf South at Tulane in March. And that conference was on interactions between French and native people around here. And I gave a talk called uh, Bull is Still a Place, Decolonizing the History of New Orleans. And that kind of was the centerpiece article at the beginning of the zine. And it's an attempt to sort of give a response to the tricentennial and uh, all of the hullabaloo about that, which is... So, so I
0: thought it was kind of funny that it says it's the tricentennial edition on the cover, despite... Yeah, it is uh, It is the tricentennial
2: issue, and that that's a big concern in this issue. Um, you know, like... Uh, it, it doesn't seem like there's that much pushback about it. Now, I'm not saying there is no pushback about it, but certainly a lot of people in the city are kind of um, all gung-ho about this, you know. And uh, even some Native people I knew, you know, they had the King of Spain visited here this year, and Native people rushed to meet with him, and I guess completely forgetting, like, certain very crucial events in the history of this area. Um, you know, like, it was kind of... Uh, yeah, it's not the kind of event uh, I would be interested in, um, you know. Yeah, like, I don't know, if they you know, gave him a smallpox blanket or whatever. Or something, you know, perversive. <laughs> they <Thank you. laughs> <laughs> <laughs> gave it back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, have some, yeah, have I, some
1: I, influenza. And then, uh, I know there were a couple <laughs> streets in the quarter that were miraculously fixed almost overnight. And it was only because it was the streets the King of Spain was driving down.
2: Yeah, it's kind of...
1: Not good enough for us. Charters, but, yeah, and well, all that. Yeah. On the like, somehow they fixed them like overnight. Like it was literally like days, and they were completely redone. Yeah, it's like all the like, cleanup they did when uh, John Paul II
2: was here. I remember that. I just need to
0: uh, like arrange for some dignitaries to visit, like every. The Backstreet Cultural Muse- Museum. Yeah, or I can that, I can definitely those. think of some places where I live in the
2: <laughs> Upper Ninth Ward that they can they can come visit any time if uh, they like <laughs> If it's going to mean getting some streets fixed. Yeah. So the publication it, it has you know essays and things, but also it has um, some poetry, of course, four poems actually no five poems by four poets, of which I am one. And it has an interview and a couple of little notes, and lots of artwork. And uh, I guess I really wanted to get poetry in it just because I am really relate to a good bit of native poetry. And I've just been into poetry for a long time uh, as a consumer of poetry, I guess. And sometimes as a writer of poetry, I do have one poem in this that I wrote in about probably 20 minutes um, but I used to do, really like to do translations of poetry. And um, actually, one of my favorite poets to translate was Catullus, which you have published a translation of. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I really like your translation, by the way. Thank you. I've thank read you. Uh, a bunch of different ones. And I've also read it, of course, uh, in lingua latina. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> um, and so. I really wanted to get that in there because many of the native writers I relate to most um, are poets or essayists and not so much writers of narrative fiction. I'm not sure why that is. Of course, there's some great native writers of narrative fiction. But I think of poets I really relate to, like Joy Harjo. Or, yeah, yeah. Um, Probably the one I read the most often is a poet from Guam, a Chamoran poet, Craig Santos Perez, who teaches in Hawaii and... Uh, I really admire his book tremendously. He does have a poem and a forthcoming book about Tabasco, it, uh, which is a book that does a lot of food culture. But I remember reading um, a couple of volumes from his series he has called "From, from, Unincorporated, from Unincorporated Territory," and I guess uh, even though it's about Guam, I really found myself thinking that you know, like this is the thing I've read that most reminded me of Louisiana, um, and. Uh, so that was kind of interesting to me because he blends a lot of history and culture and feeling and politics into his poems. It's like a, I feel like after I've read that, I've never been to Guam, but I feel like I've had an education on what Guam is just by reading him. Yeah, that's always the best thing. You can Come <laughs> away from something like that. Yeah. Yes. Um, I'm not sure what the comparable work of Louisiana writing is. Um. Well, that, that there might not be. That might not
0: totally exist, I guess.
2: Yeah, maybe not.
1: I don't know. Yeah.
0: Um, I mean, there are some people, I think, who get close to it sometimes.
2: Yeah. I mean, there's just so many facets of Louisiana. Yeah, a it might be hard place. to do. I was just going to
1: say, it's such a, it is such a complicated place, you know? Um, until you get to Metairie. Metairie is simple, a little simple. That's that's
2: Cleveland. It
1: is, right? <laughs> like, I think about that, too. Like, yeah, once 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 you get out to Metairie, it just, like, turns into, like, Westlake. Well, it's every, uh, it's
0: every suburb, I it's guess. It's every
1: suburb. But, is the same, yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, although, you know, Metairie still has some...
0: Some cultural stuff.
1: Yeah, I mean, think yeah, of Metairie's quite a, great. there's quite a bit of good...
2: And Bonneville Boat Launch is
0: pretty cool. Think of their
2: great Italian restaurants, too. Yeah, they do have
0: some good Italian restaurants, for sure.
2: Yeah, um... But in, you know I am really interested in Louisiana culture in a lot of aspects, and a lot of those aspects are native um, that people sometimes don't really think about, especially food culture and even music culture, be heavily native
1: here. Um, I um, well, well, clearly, I mean, we're, we're clearly there was some interact, you know, I mean, there was there was there was interactions, you know, uh, you and I have spoke about this in the past how when there's depictions of the French market, uh, you know, pre reconstruction right people don't really take notice about the natives in those in those images it's, yeah it's, it's overlooked very mm-hmm. often
2: well something I mentioned uh, recently in an interview I did with anti-gravity uh, relates to looking through your archive uh, uh, Macos uh, because I notice on a lot of the Times speaking front pages from the 19th century the Indian, uh, the Indian Wars are always really prominent you know even more than I mean, much more prominent than the wars uh, you know the u s is fighting overseas now are on the front page. I'm sure you know soldiers are you know going places and doing things and but it seemed like it in great detail I've talked about um, the Indian wars on the cover of The Times picayune and it seemed like that was a big thing in the American imagination, maybe until around World War I, and people kind of forgot, i guess probably between. Really, the late 19th century and when the American Indian movement rose in the late 60s, you know, native people weren't really on the front page very much. And I guess there's kind of been a return in interest lately, I think, with uh, environmental activism and all that sort of thing, and the native people taking the forefront of that, not only at places like Standing Rock, but also um, here with the uh, anti Bayou Bridge Pipeline movement.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, uh, Nate, um, that coverage for sure. Indian War stuff, uh, and and I just some other things come to mind. the 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 whole, the whole the Hawaiian Revolution. There was a bunch of coverage of that. Yeah, when the
2: yeah, I remember that too. Like when the U.S.'s uh, you know the colonial expansion of late nineteenth, early twentieth century involved a lot of American interaction with indigenous peoples. And yeah. That. Um, interaction. That's kind
1: of a euphemism. Um, but None, yeah. yeah right. <laughs> so, but in just like in, that, in... that's like the Times picune saying that um, Zamoury played hardball with South American dictators <laughs> right? Yeah. In, in, their, in their coverage of the, the United Fruit legacy of the tricentennial, right? Yeah. Come on, man. That's like the that's like the biggest fucking whitewash of history I've ever read. <laughs> in Times picune in recent in recent well, like try not well, to read it. Yeah. But... Uh,
0: that's baffling though. Like, why would you? <laughs> They literally use the
1: phrase. John Hope literally used the phrase. Sir Murray even played hardball with South American <laughs> dictators, like he meant, he, like he actually meant, like he played baseball with them. Like, like people would have read that and thought that's what they meant. And not even like really like
2: dictators. I mean, the United Fruit Company had the democratically elected government of Guatemala overthrown by the yeah. CIA. Yeah, um, which, yeah, this
1: <laughs> ugly history of. Bunch of, that's what <laughs> well, you know, that might be a, down the line, that might be a topic I might like to, to contribute to is doing something on United Proof. Yeah.
0: So maybe, I think yeah. one thing we maybe skipped over, because we're just assuming everyone understands, but do we maybe want to explain the term Balbancha?
2: Yeah. Um, do you want me to read, or do you want me to talk Either about way,
0: however, whatever you think is you uh, the better way of doing like that.
2: Two and a half pages, that would really get people to know what it like. All right, cool, about. yeah, that's sure. good. Okay, this is the first couple pages from an essay entitled The Launch is Still a Place, Decolonizing the Tricentennial of New Orleans. By myself, Jeffrey Aaron. The city is abuzz with the tricentennial. Countless events have sprung up. Lectures, festivals, concerts, posters, art walks, flags, and shirts proclaim that this place where I write is 300 years old. The idea that 300 is a number of particular significance, marking the anniversary of Bienville landing around here, often, though not always, described using colonialist lies such as discovery and founding As if the indigenous peoples of the area never existed, as if there were no other people around in 1718 other than Europeans. Those who celebrate the tricentennial know there were people here, but choose not to focus on it very much. And when they do, they tend to leave out the negative legacy of colonialism. They often don't even know the names of the displaced nations, but they could if they looked. Importantly, they often don't know that this was already a place, a place with a name, before the first Europeans set sail for the area. Bulbancha, the place of many languages, or the place of many tongues, is the original name for this area. Depending on what orthography one uses for the Choctaw language, it could also be called Bulbancha with, uh, with an A after the first B. I use the orthography from Alan Wright's 1880 book, A Choctaw Lexicon. While Bancha is much older than New Orleans, it is also closer to the heart of the matter. Before the first Europeans came here, it was a place where people from around 40 distinct native groups crisscrossed, traded, followed game and fished, moved due to rising and falling waters, and interacted with one another. It was a place of diversity, of changes, where people came and went in search of what they needed, including the Chitamacha, Homa, Chawasha, Washa, Pisa, Tunica Biloxi, Bayugula, Natchez, Tensa, Takapa-Ishak, and other groups as well. It was Bobancha then, that is Bulbancha now, a complex, multi-ethnic, multicultural place. Rather than following a typical white custom of naming places after those with the most power and physical possessions, such as the Duke of Orléans, the native name honors the various peoples of the area and their complex arrangements. It honors the search by all of these peoples for sustenance and interaction. 300 years is not a significant amount of time for the First Nations of the area. It's a good bit of time for Europeans to be somewhere on Turtle Island, what they call the Americas. Indigenous peoples recognize that this land has thousands of years of our thoughts, thousands of years of our songs, our care, our living with it, our caring for it. This land has thousands of years of our campfires, our nets, our pots, our blankets, our children, our drums, our love. It contains thousands of years of our bones and those of our animal cousins who have traveled this long journey with us. What can we say in response to a tricentennial greeting? I offer up something from the Atacapán language as a member of the Ishak nation, "Naki which translates as Happy Big French Day. That's the greeting for New Year's Day for our people in our language. It is a recognition that some ways of marking time and events are colonial ideas and not part of how we have lived and thought about our ancestral lands and the time we have spent in them. As to whether or not I, as a Creole and native person, think the tricentennial is worth celebrating, I must offer a decisive no. The racist legacy of colonialism that caused Bulbacha to be renamed New Orleans, the ensuing enslavement of people of color, the discrimination, the segregation, the slow violence of denied opportunities and exploitation, a legacy that Hurricane Katrina and its aftermath proved is in no way in the past, that is not worth celebrating at all. I love this place, Bulbancha, and that native name captures the great and wonderful aspects of its nature. However, to celebrate the greed and racism of its colonial founding is simply beneath me. Uh, so that's the uh, opening uh, essay of the zine. Yeah, yeah. Um, as you can see, it's cheery and um, <laughs> <laughs> not everything in it is quite as dour. I always mm-hmm. used to hate it when I was uh, younger and, you know, well, the native writing was just so serious, you know, like the native people on TV are so serious, you know. I mean, lack like the, they forget about the dark humor, you know. I guess maybe like, you know, Little Big Man, which I think was. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's like the first really major Hollywood movie where native people were really positively portrayed. Um, and reasonably accurately portrayed. Um, you know, that captures a lot of that humor. Um, that definitely it's in you know, native writers like Sherman Alexie or you know people who just capture that dark humor, and that's something that
1: <laughs> I'm not always that dour. Like, I think it's important. <laughs> I still think it's important. I still think it's a, it's, a, it's an important tone and an important thing to set. the, the, the important message to set the tone. Let's
0: well, say. but it is like a funny thing, right, because New Orleans is a place, and Louisiana in general, but New Orleans even more so, that tends to try to pride itself on its diversity in some way or in the way that it is this big mix of all these kinds of people but yeah. that it but that you know like when you when you cut when it comes to those kind of things when it comes to this organized celebration of the city it leaves all that behind
2: yeah it becomes very very french and spanish and not as much of uh, Concerned with, you know, for example, it's, well, it's native heritage. Not only that, but also African heritage. And yeah, you don't see much of that in this either, in
0: the uh, tricentennial either, do yeah, you? Yeah, like well, what we're
2: African people. Uh, well, you know, like they don't really like to talk about that story of slavery and you know all those swank little apartments that people occupy at the back of buildings in the French quarters that used to be slave quarters. And <laughs> yeah, you know, even like there's even like this *Dwell* magazine-looking monstrosity that's in my neighborhood that. You know, it's basically like this fancy modern version of a New Orleans home, and it it even has a fancy Dwell magazine version of the slave cabin in the back. Really? It's like, wow, (laughs) postmodern slavery. Like, I wonder if, like, you know, you can donate to a for-profit prison in a kiosk back there or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Um, So uh, I think that, yeah, I'm also concerned with the – uh, absence of the African legacy, but the native thing is something that I, I I just find really conspicuous here because it's it's just so rarely discussed, even when we're talking about things that are so heavily native.
0: Well, there, but yeah, I mean, there's at least lip service to the African legacy, but you don't even see that.
2: Well, if we even <laughs> look look at the food here, like I just can't imagine having the traditional food here without. First of all, the seafood that native people show people how to catch, but also bell peppers or tomatoes or. Maize slash corn, you know, there's cornbread carrots yeah. or red beans or pecans or any number of cayenne pepper, any number of things that are filet, you know, the ground sassafras leaves, it's gumbo, um, any number of things that native people have contributed to the food here. Uh, pretty much, I mean, if we think of like a crawfish boil, everything in that's pretty native. I mean, those corn. Um, Cayenne pepper—that's that's are native things. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's not usually discussed in that way, but it should be. It should be better known. I mean, Americans enjoy a lot of native foods that they just often forget that—that's a legacy of the peop- original peoples here. I mean, pretty much all the foods of Thanksgiving are native foods, and uh, people forget about those sorts of things. Well, I think there's <laughs>
0: also just a complete lack of knowledge of that. I always find it like baffling. I forget. So I do this quiz every year. It's just like a trivia thing for my Latin students. And uh one of the questions on there is which of these did uh were not invented by the Romans. And they always get it wrong even though it's something they should be able to figure out. The correct answer is the potato peeler, but no one ever realizes like, yeah, no, the potato yeah. <laughs> pe- potatoes are yeah. from from North America, or that like, did not exist. Yeah, you know, like
2: people who think you know <laughs> Italians invented tomatoes. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, I mean, you know, there's a lot of back and forth and stuff that people have traded and part of the wonder of humanity, you know. Um, and of course, they're not only did Europeans latch on to native stuff, and you know, native people latched on to European things like horses and et cetera. Um, and so, uh, there's. You know, there's a lot of that. I just think it's uh, sometimes not uh, sufficiently appreciated around here, like the native contribution to New Orleans. But also, I, one other thing that always irks me is the musical contribution, because um, you know, when we talk about Congo Square, or I was talking about the cradle of New Orleans music. But Congo Square is a native dancing ground. Yeah. Even, even the sign So It's supposed to believe that native people had dancing ground. That native and African people danced there together for a long time. And then this music rose out of it. And then, contrary to everything we've learned about human interaction in the past 100,000 years, uh, <laughs> there's no, <laughs> there's no inter, you know, legacy. And that's true of, you know, a number. Like, Zydeco music is often associated with my tribe, the you talk because uh, if you look at a map of all the traditional Zydeco-producing areas, a lot of these people of descent from our tribe, even, whether it's the original... Well, I didn't know that, yeah. Ones. Yeah, wow. even modern-day people like Cedric Watson, who is... Uh, originally from texas but our tribal territory extends all the way into eastern houston and um but if you take a map of those original zydeco performers, they're all from somewhere in our tribal territory either southwest louisiana or southeast texas and a lot of them are members of our tribe and um some of them know and there's even some a lot of people think our tribe contributed to zydeco uh certain aspects of zydeco music um
0: has there been work, like, tracing that in some way? Or?
2: There has been some writing about it. Um, I'm, I'm a research fellow for the New Orleans Center of the Gulf South. I'm a fellow this year, and I have a part in the book I'm writing about our tribe about that. Uh, Cajun music has, uh, if you've ever listened to a lot of traditional native folk music from Canada, a lot of it sounds like Cajun music. And yeah, yeah. Uh, For years now, I've been saying that I thought uh, Balfour Brothers' uh, danced to Mardi Gras, which is one of the most popular Cajun songs... I mean, part of the standard is like Beethoven's Ninth Symphony of Cajun music. Uh, I've always thought the singing was just Native singing, and people you know, tend to tell me, like, uh, Jeffrey, you think everything is Native, and, um, <laughs> and sometimes that's the case. Um, but I found recently an interview with someone who had talked to Alan Lomax about that song, and Lomax had yeah. given that song as an example of Native influence in Cajun music. The vocals just sound like what you hear at powwows. It doesn't really sound a lot like other Cajun music, and I kind of think it's probably a native song copied over and you know transformed into mm. a French language song or something like that. Um, a lot of that doesn't really get appreciated as much because people aren't looking for the native history. They're not looking for native roots, and so it's not just that they couldn't find it. It's that they're not looking for it in the first place. Yeah. And so it keeps them from finding things that are often right in front of their face, you know. Um, and I think that that's something that uh, maybe the zine project is about, is saying, you know, this is still Bulbantia. It still has that native influence, and it still has all of that. Um, uh, and then there's also poetry in the zine. I don't know if you wanted me to read some poetry. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, we do, oh, need, yeah. A, we
0: do need to get the poetry eventually. All right, eventually. All right um,
2: so... <laughs> I have a poem in here, but it's not very good. So I'm going to start with, um, I'm going to start with a poem. Wow, that was a, that was a sad meeting I had. So I want to start with a couple of poems that are maybe a little bit more, I don't know. I just love her poetry. So my distant cousin, Rain Prudhomme Cranford, teaches native literature at, uh, University of Calgary in Canada. Um,
1: and How's she doing up there? I remember when she was just <sighs> heading up there. Yeah, she is doing great. Um, and
2: awesome. And she um, is really an amazing poet. She is one of two people in this zine who have won the uh, WordCraft Circle of Native Writers Award, which is kind of like the Native Pulitzers. One was Carolyn Dunn, nice. who ran it for one of her books of poetry, and uh, Rain also won it for, her f- for the first poetry book award, um, and she submitted some poems for this. Uh, Rain is um, uh, of Louisiana descent. Did not grow up here. She's of Louisiana Creole and Native descent, and speaks um, Chata. And I'd like to read uh, a couple of her poems, or at least one. This one is called "Palms Open Face," and I'm reading this poem. It's not by me, but I'm reading it with her permission. In this space, I offer you broken threads, still frayed and raw from trauma of sever. I give you palms open-faced, remnants of this rooted place, salt water slipping through fingers, river mud caked into lifeline, a leftover muscadine skin, and four loquat seeds. When earth begins to shake so loud, I can no longer hear echoes of shell-shaking stomp dancers and leader calls and southern wind ebb and flow and grass blades cease vibrating delta-blue rhythmic moans against soles of my feet. When waters, they rise, oil slick. You will find me in spring bayou, tying cursing knots in cotton mouths. (laughs) Uh, I really like this uh, poem, especially this last line, tying cursing knots in cotton mouths. Um, That end is great. A lot of native dancing regalia from this area has snake imagery, the snakes were seen as protectors of our people, and yeah, and uh, but I think of this poem a lot because of a dream rain helped me interpret last year. Uh, I guess dreams are poetry, aren't they? Like <laughs> can they're be, very twilight, long. they're twilight phenomena, like Freud would say. We give you a <laughs> window into something. This is a psychoanalysis podcast. Yeah, I don't know. I don't
0: know if we want to bring Freud into it, but it's certainly like yeah. All right, I hope we're like accessing. All um, right, we gotta stop talking while we get the crinkling of the snacks. Sorry, is that gonna, yeah, it, there's nothing. Wait, wait, what up. snacks are you? Using? <laughs> is it sour potato? jacks? Sour
2: jacks. Oh, oh, that pretz- was the other pretzels are a native got snack. No, you gotta have potato chips or something. What some is the other one?
0: Lemonade, sour jacks. I don't know what that even is. Oh yeah, I don't know what those are either. Probably okay, those aren't a native non-native.
1: appropriate snack. <laughs> <laughs> i sorry, I'm not... <laughs> We can have buffalo burgers and fry Oh uh, man,
2: where's my buffalo fry bread? That's what I oh. want. Um, so, um uh, do you want me to tell you about this dream? Oh yeah, yeah. No, when we started
0: talking about the dream, and right, then we so, got sidetracked.
2: Uh, so I had a dream like last year where I was in a peyote ceremony. I was in the TP and it was dark, and I knew I'd taken the peyote, and so the. It was dark in there, and it was like a lot of smoke, and I was thirsty, and it was muddy, and I could hear everyone singing. I could kind of see their shadows, but there was no fire in the middle. Um, and so, usually the fire's on a little altar that's maybe a few inches off the ground, and the rest of the teepee. And so, I start crawling forward to the altar, and it just gets like muddier and muddier, and and then I realize I'm crawling through grass, and I'm on an island in the Chaffee Basin, and it's dark. And I emerge from the grass, and I just kind of collapse like in breathlessness and thirst, and just fall down on the ground. And the ground is covered in snakes, and they cover over me and make a blanket. And I woke up. It was pretty amazing. like. Um, but then Rain was like, you know, like um, the snakes, those are like protectors, like it's you like being protected. Um, and so I think about this a lot with this poem. The end, you know, when waters they rise, oil slick, you will find me in spring bayou, tying cursing knots in cotton mouths. you know, like the snakes as protectors in troubling times. Did did
0: they feel like protectors to you in the
2: dream? I didn't know what they were doing, but I wasn't afraid of them. I'm not generally afraid of snakes, but, like, it was just kind of, um, it was an unusual. It was an unusual dream, I guess. It was an unusual, stereotypical native dream. <laughs> that kind of dream I'm supposed to have, and not dreams about, you know, <laughs> you know, this guitar I want to buy or something. You know, like. um, so, uh, okay, that's one poem by Rain. I, I could read another one of Rain's poems, but. Yeah, I'm going to read a poem by Andrew Jolivet. So, uh, Andrew Jolivet is a member of my tribe. He is a Takhapat And he is Professor of Native American Studies at San Francisco State University. And is one of those people who, um, like when I'm interested in something, I'll read a Wikipedia article about it. And uh, Andrew will write a book about it. And that's the kind of person <laughs> he is. Um, and Andrew's scholarship involves a lot of mixed ethnicity people, and um, especially two-spirit people, which is a broad native term for people we might think of as, you know, gay, lesbian, bisexual. Um, And I didn't even know he wrote poetry, and then he submitted, I wanted him to submit something, he submitted this poem. So I'm going to read a poem by Andrew Jolivet called Ruptures. Ripped from earth's red skin, pinched, pulled, stretched out against time, ruptures create soul wounds. Wounds of a thousand nations, of dissolved centers, softening like wet cotton. All the scars slowly stain, slowly soak in. Ghosts haunt us as we sleep, as we wake. No place for memory to hide. No place for memory to resolve, to resist. We are haunted. We are broken bone and ash. We are ancient mounds desecrated. We are contaminated water underneath ceremonial rock. We are two-spirit. We are between. Two-spirit dissolved. Two-spirit names. Winkte. Nadlichi changing ones, here in the cracks of of earth we emerge out of the wombs of dead mothers, haunting spirits we become, colonial haunting attaches and affixes itself to our children, gone in the sun of a thousand dancers our spirit traumas remain, invasion syndrome re-triggers every trauma, every moment of settler violence, and yet here in this new morning light beneath Spanish moss and eucalyptus, Among smells of venison, salmon, and koan, we begin a new fire so our people can eat, so our people can dance, dance a dance only our grandmother's feet recognize. We begin again, we sing again, we gather again. In ceremony, we wipe every frozen tear. In ceremony, we re-stitch every ruptured body, every ancestor memory. In ceremony, we return to our knowledge systems. We unmask our truths in multicolored blankets and shawls, exchanging skin, blood, and what's most radical about love, our vulnerability to become reborn. Here in our return, we reach out and whisper to the sacred. We hear you. We remember. We remain. We are ruptured no more. We are dissolved no longer. We are rescinding every haunting, every rape, every unsober moment for a return to the sacred. Look there to the moon and see that the sacred is in the undilated pupils of your sisters, of your brothers. Look to the elders, turn to the youth, be your own healing, be your own truth, you, be your best medicine. There and the return, may all sacrifices be remembered, may all hauntings be dismembered, may all ruptures dissipate into springs and creeks along the land, where Indian blood, yes, Indian blood, means finally we are free, free to exist, free to remember, finally we are free. And that is Ruptures by Andrew Jolifat. Um, Um, Andrew's just, yeah, he's a pretty amazing person. Uh, We do cover the, you know, two-spirit aspects of our culture. Um,
0: So you have an interview in there, too? We do,
2: with with a local high school student who is two-spirit and gender non-binary, what people sometimes call trans, uh, named Winter Whitehat, and Winter is Lakota. She is a direct descendant of Hollowhorn Bear, one of the Lakota generals, so to speak, in the Indian Wars. Uh, one thing that um, is interesting about many native cultures is that we just accept, you know, our, we're tied to nature, and that means accepting people in their natural variety. And, um, many of our cultures have some special place for people who we call to spirit. There are special ceremonies for these people. Um, I know that the first time a European observed uh, what we would call a same-sex marriage. It was Cabeza de Vaca, the Spanish cast oh, yeah, yeah. observing members of my own tribe, uh, when he was shipwrecked with us in Galveston Bay, um, and that's perfectly natural to us. Um, people often forget that. Uh, I remember when you know there was uh, all the legal issues with same-sex marriage around here a few years ago. Uh, people were like, "Well, we're going to introduce something new. We're going to redefine marriage and all this stuff." I was like what do you mean redefine? When are y'all going to catch up with us? You know, <laughs> y'all came here like what? Originally like 500 years ago and you're still trying to catch up with us with recognizing that people have great variety in their sexual expression. And um, so I'm really happy to have this interview with Winter who is just so smart and um, it's a good things to say. You can read it if you get our zine. Yep. So
0: where can people find your zine, first of all?
2: Well, um, here in town it's available at Nolimix Records and at Zeitgeist, provided they have copies or they can go to bolbanchisstillalplace.org.
1: Oh, um I was just sorry. I was going to say that you know my introduction my introduction to to native languages was through powwow music. Yeah. And uh, I learned I learned a lot about the native culture through that through that lens um, as a young man starting to go into powwows as early as 14. Yeah. And um, I, I uh, we, you know, we took these classes about singing and things, and it was really interesting learning about vocables and, yeah. and, and how the, how the, you know, the, 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 the sounds used in in Palo songs. You know, there, there's some are telling stories; they're very poetic. You know, some are telling stories of the hunt. Yeah. Some are telling long form stories, and some are just sounds. Some don't even aren't even in language. A they're lot of yeah, they're imi- linguistic tones,
2: but also like sometimes imitations of birdsong. Imit- um, okay, but, but then yeah, some of it is just untranslatable. Yeah. But you know, you know, we still see that in Louisiana music, like hey na na. You know, uh, no, yeah that's, yeah. That's, yeah, that's what I was, what I was <laughs> gonna say.
1: It's like there is, there is an interesting thing that comes through. So like, if we say it comes through Cajun music, because it does come that that aspect yeah. of those singing sounds comes through Cajun music, but it also is in more so than other mid century songs, it comes through Louisiana pop songs. There's lots of like interesting yeah things like that that come through, you know, the 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 music that just comes through in these like you know, like you said, like ways that ways that people um use just sounds or singing noises that don't really mean anything. You know? Well the
0: take the, what you're saying and pop. maybe get us back to poetry too, though, but so, I mean, we talk a lot about that connection between music and poetry Any, anyway. Is that is that part of the native poetic tradition, too, the connection to the music? Or
2: Yeah, I think um, songs play an important role. Uh, and then, you know, sometimes people record song lyrics without necessarily keeping up the music. Um, yeah. I mean, when I think of, like, early anthropologists, you know, recording native songs that uh, collected, where... We're not really quite sure, maybe what the music was behind them. If the song didn't persist, you know. Um, but they record the songs. I guess that's similar in the Bible. You know, it's the Book of Songs, yeah, which yeah. are all you know songs. But I guess that music probably. Who knows what it was actually like? Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't want it. Well, I'm, you know, a bunch of Bible people, Bible scholars going to jump down my throat. Know. <laughs> you know, but um, the. Uh, yeah, that's. Uh, I think that maybe the part of that native poetic tradition has to do with the connection to songs and the connection to uh, powwow songs and or not just powwow songs, but just songs for any kind of ceremony. Uh, our ceremonies tend to be, you know, pretty musical and um, where the music is an integral part of the ceremony, and that's something that's easy to carry with you. I think. You know, um, songs are not just for entertainment. They're also instruction, uh, but they also express a lot of like the hardest things, um, which leads me, if you want, to another poem. So this poem is by uh, Dr. Carolyn Dunn. Carolyn is an artist in residence this year at University of Central Oklahoma. She is a sometime winner of the WordCraft Circle Native Writers Award. Um, She it's also a board member of the Oklahoma Indigenous Theater Company. She's a playwright, poet, and a person who probably writes every type of thing and uh, seems to do all of that much better than I do. Um, so I was really happy that she agreed to be in this publication. And she submitted this poem. It's called To the Mothers of the Disappeared. Grief is a bitter taste on the tongue, root used in prayer to send waves of sorrow that bounce back off an empty ocean of tears rising in smoke of mist like ghosts of the children who will never be coming home. When we look at the stars, maps to the world where we will find one another, littered bones that are strewn across the sky of night ascent and the bridge between dawn and dusk, the shadow of the leaving ripples across the ocean as the ship that sailed with our dreams, away from home and never seen again. The froth trail from a ship of grief sluicing through the calm waters, Within the safety of the Bay of Smoke, the water divides, then soothes, rippling back to the place we cry your name. The ocean bears our tears, bears our grief, the stone in the place our hearts once lived. And you, that red beating and shiny thing, sails across our tears to follow you to the trial trial of stars that will someday lead you home, that place where we will all be reborn. And that's from Carolyn Dunn. Uh, that's to the mother. Um, that's poem is to the mothers of the disappeared. And Carolyn also has Louisiana ancestry. Um, her ad- indigenous identities makes Cherokee, uh, Muscogee Creek, Seminole, and Choctaw. Uh, Friedman on her father's side, and Tunica Choctaw, Biloxi, and French Creole on her mother's side. So uh, she does have a good connection to Louisiana. And uh, I'm definitely looking forward to getting whatever her next might be. Um, I like to, and I'm very fortunate that people who are very well-established writers agreed to submit to this scene. Um, and um, yeah, there's also a poem by me in it, which is. Cool. Um, <laughs> so apparently
0: that, you're going to make people go out and get them get the zine to, to read yeah you'll have to go get the zine <laughs> to read my poem about,
2: about my fascination with bicycles <laughs> uh,
0: so, so is, there, is there an issue number two on the horizon yeah we
2: plan to release another issue towards the end of this year and i'm already collecting material for it and uh, it's pretty excited. We have a secret new guest artist that I'm not going to reveal. <laughs> uh, but also, um, there's been so much interest in the zine, and we're really happy about all the interest that it is generating. And I'm just really happy people want to know more about the native history of the area and know more about those, those roots here. And it's a story that has not been told very often, and it needs to be told.
1: There's, there's like all this, I feel like there's maybe behind the veil, there's a lot more information, you know?
2: Yeah, I think it's out there. It's just a question of putting it forward. I know I've been researching this book and, you know, like I'm um, making a few road trips and just going around Lafayette, Louisiana this summer. It was shocking to me, the amount of information I found. that has never been published. Um, just, and I can only assume that it's never been published just because no one ever looked like no one ever says, "Hey, let's find out what is the native history of this little area of Lafayette." And then I was thinking, "There's got to be nothing." Like, oh no, oh no, there's quite a lot. It's just like it's no just, one ever ever bothered. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> no, really bothered. Well, yeah.
1: well, again, I think that like a lot of things, you know. Um, I was make I was like I was like making fun of these, you know. There's all these like uh, ain't ain't there no more, you know. All these like uh, you know, this very specific thing down here. Yeah. Ain't there no more, you know. Yeah. But I I keep thinking about like um. How about stuff that's so dis- How about stuff that's so far back in the collective memory of people, where it's like it's you don't, no one even knows to ask for it. Yeah. So yeah. I so I've recently been asking yeah. people about stuff that's like pre World War II, and and like a lot of these ain't there no more. Like professionals, they claim to know everything about New Orleans, but they don't. They don't. Once you go further back. They don't really know too much about it.
0: No, but anyone who claims that they know everything about New Orleans is
2: full of shit. Yeah, now. that's absolutely <laughs> true. Uh, you know, like, I remember, you know, I have a classical education like you, Mr. Bienvenue. And... Um, I remember I came. I read like Augustine's Confessions in Latin once, yeah, and yeah. I remember in the essay, the opening of this book, there was like a box of Augustine's papers at some medieval monastery, and it said, "Anybody who's read all of this is a liar," <laughs> and that's kind of how I feel about uh, like anyone who knows all of New Orleans history is a liar. But that doesn't mean that you know. There's not like a lot of people. They're so amazing to me. Like all the people who have all these weird little areas of expertise oh, yeah. about New Orleans. That's the best stuff. You know, like yes.
1: <laughs> Well, the, like the one thing I was gonna say is like my my one friend who's like who's like one of these sort of jack of all trades guy um, guys. Um, I'm I'm gonna actually leave them unnamed, but he uh, he was he was a pilot for the oil industry in the '80s, and. Uh, you know, he was doing some sort of explorations, and he he, he is credited at LSU for discovering these uh, this Indian mounds yeah. in, in uh, Bayou Grand Chenier. Yeah, I know are talking. About. And 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 uh, it's a it's on Wikipedia, and the, it has a, a conical mound that's 40 feet 30 feet off the ground. And he's like, man, no one's talking about all this super important histories that are here. You know, he always he, he he brings up sort of these native histories here they're like yeah. unknown there's a I lot know lot the, people know. With
2: my research in Lafayette I mean a lot of this stuff has been published about but what i just did is i just i would go and interview someone and he would say like oh you should call this friend of mine you know and and, uh, and i would call them and eventually i would get to people who are like oh yeah my grandfather like found this thing in the back of our property <laughs> uh, or i was calling cuz like I, I heard that this guy someone gave me a name of this guy He's like, he used to own this business down by, you know, by Abbeville. And he had a big collection of native stuff. So you should just call the business. I called, and his, sure enough, his grandson answered. It's like, I, I have the business now. You can come down and look at stuff. So I go down there, and I think he was going to show me, like, a box of stuff in his house. And instead, he puts me in a boat. And we go out, like, out into Vermilion Bay. And he takes me to this, like, little channel. It's about, channel's about three, 400 yards across. One side of the channel is, like, some shelves. The other side of the channel is some shelves, And he's like, and it's like, so what are we looking at? And he says, oh, well, this used to be a shell mound all the way across when, oh, wow. a long time ago. And he's like, let me show you. And, like, so sure enough, we get on the shore, and there's literally thousands of pieces of pottery. Wow. Uh, and it was, it stood, the mound was so big, it was hard for me to even believe it. And, like, my people built the mound. And I'm still like, wow, did we really build that? And like, It's kind of like what I felt when I was standing at the pyramids. I was like, did somebody really build this? Why would anyone do that? Like, it's so big, you know? Like, And that's how I... Th- and was hard for you even to believe it. And it's my own people. Um, there's a lot of that where there's people who just know. But part of the task, I guess, of the local historian or any historian... I'm, I'm not really a historian. I'm just somebody who's trying to write a book about a tribal nation... Um, Is gathering all of these pieces of information. And this is a really interesting city for that because there's so many people who have all these weird little, you know. Yeah, it's just, it's amazing like this stuff you can uncover if you start looking around. uh, Yeah, I mean, because there's all
1: the, there's there's the, like, no one thinks of, you know, I I mean, I consider myself sort of like a material culturalist, you know, like looking at material culture as part of a, a historic, you know, my understanding of history, my lens. And there is an entire material culture of na- of, of native history too. You know, like yeah. this pottery—that's the material. And part. a lot
0: of it, fairly from on an academic level, fairly unexplored. So if you're looking for something to research, yeah. But most there of my research is more, yeah.
2: you know, I, I have more contemporary people. Like I, I'm interested in the ancestors, but I'm also more interested in how people view the ancestors now, and uh-huh. I'm much more interested in native people now and. You know the quote of "Who's left now?" Like what we're doing now, and who's identifying us? You know, or which what people are members of tribal nations and how those cultures being lived right now is just as important to me because we change over time. Cultures yeah, change. Yeah. I mean, like people who lived in medieval Paris and people who live in Paris now are Parisians. They're both Parisians. You know, and there's prob there's similarities and there's differences, and uh, you know. And that's kind of that's not what I think about, I guess. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining thank us you today. For that was me. great. Yeah, uh, uh, absolutely worthy,
1: worthy project, and we look forward to tracking it um, as, as it develops over time. Um, such, a, such a great and worthy zine uh, project. Um, pick up a copy if you, if you can find it at uh, Zekeist, and you said... Um, also at NOLA Mix Records on the magazine. Know the mixed records as well. And do the public libraries
2: have it? Uh, they will get it. They will get it. Uh, but we also, you can email us uh, at org. go to our website, or find us on Facebook, B U L B A N C H A. And
0: we'll put a link to that for sure.
2: Thank you. I would appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, uh, thank you for having me on. I'm glad good could share some of the good poetry. I know it's no good poetry, but it's, it's the good poetry. <laughs> it's a double meaning because it's for New Orleans. I yeah. oh, See, that that went right past me because it didn't say <laughs> Bulbancha, good poetry. We're <laughs> yeah. so have to change the name.
0: I don't know how to do that. Boo, good poetry.
2: <laughs> yeah. Boo. I think that was the oldest native name. I also, in my tribal language, is Nunush, which just means big village. And then... A guy I know, John Barbary, who's a zine contributor who's a member of the Tunica Biloxi Nation he said their name in their language it means white people town for New Orleans which I mean. <laughs> <laughs> um, becoming more accurate every day <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm you even going to call
2: Yeah, I'm going to establish a city in France called Nubal Bansha <laughs> that would be perfect <laughs>
0: all right